0: That's BlueNile.com. Hi, this is Raven. This episode was sponsored by Studio, the Swedish headphone company. They sent me a pair of their headphones that not only sounded great, but also looked great. The headband portion is covered in a soft leather material that looks very sleek The part that goes over your ears has these sturdy little covers on the outside that you can change to suit your personal look. If headphones aren't for you, then they also have Bluetooth earbuds. All for a surprisingly reasonable price. Plus, you get 15% off by using my code TINY when you check out at studiosweden.com. Not only will you get a great pair of headphones to listen to more podcasts with, while looking great, but you'll also be supporting me and all the work that we do here at Tiny Vampires and Tiny Vampires Español. That's studio, like studio, but without the T, sweden.com. Hello, and welcome to Tiny Vampires, a podcast about disease, science, and blood-sucking insects. A member of the Podcast Network. I hope you enjoyed the two bonus episodes I polished yesterday. Ben Jacobs of Wittenberg to Westphalia podcast and I had a really interesting talk about the diseases of the Middle Ages. If you haven't listened to them yet, please check them out and let us know what you think. We have some ideas for other conversations, so if you loved it, liked it, or hated it, we'd really appreciate the feedback. Speaking of Ben... Today's episode is episode 17, and the second of a two-part series suggested by him. Last month was on his question about the connection between urban planning and the control of biting insects, but he also asked what can be done by urban planners to disrupt infection of people with Lyme disease, which I felt was worthy of an episode unto itself. If you haven't listened to the first in this series, I recommend it because I get into the background of what urban planning is and how it's connected to public health. Today's the first time we're really getting into Lyme disease, so I want to go over some of its history, what it is, and some of the ongoing mystery behind it. Lyme is a tick-borne disease caused by the bacteria Borrelia burgdorferi. It's responsible for 95% of the vector-borne diseases reported in the United States, but it can be found in most of the Northern Hemisphere. The infection, often but not always, causes a bullseye rash, which is the earliest and best indication of infection. Then, the joints begin to hurt, especially the larger joints like the hip and knees. Shooting pain and tingling in the hands and feet, and other nerve pain. The symptoms can be as extreme as heart palpitations due to infection of the heart, half of the face becoming paralyzed, and problems with short term memory. It can be fatal, but rarely. Mostly, it's debilitating. It's difficult to diagnose causing some people to suffer a long time before they receive the proper treatment. Those who are diagnosed receive a course of antibiotics, which is highly effective at clearing the infection. But the damage left behind is not clearly understood. The ticks that transmit Borrelia in North America are the Western Black-Legged Tick and the Deer Tick. In Europe, it's the castor bean tick, and in Asia, they are the taiga tick. Most of the ticks that transmit this bacteria are in the Ixodes group of ticks. Ticks as a whole are sit-and-wait parasites. They crawl up on low plants, like grass, along trail edges, and wait for something to walk by. Once they've attached to an animal... They instinctively crawl upwards. This is why you might have found them in your hair or along your neck or beltline. As we learned in episode 14 on how DEET works on ticks, they're not insects, but arachnids, like spiders and scorpions. They have carbon dioxide detectors on the tips of their legs which help them determine where their victim's head is, orienting them on their host, If you picture the world from their tiny perspective, crawling along through the fur of a deer or the hair of a dog, you might see why finding their way might be a problem for them, especially with their poor eyesight. When a deer tick hatches from its egg in early summer, it seeks out a mouse's nest to live in. For the sake of our story, let's say that this mouse has an infection of Borrelia burgdorferi swimming through its blood. When the young tick, called a larva, feeds on this mouse, it becomes infected itself. All through the summer, fall, and winter, safe and warm, in this mouse's nest. When spring rolls around again, it molts, sprouting a fourth pair of legs and becoming a nymph. As a nymph, it's larger and more mobile, but still feeds on mice, like a teenager not quite ready to leave home. In the fall, it molts again, becoming a fully-fledged adult. At this point, they're not only looking for blood meal, but also a mate. Deer move around a lot more than mice, so adult ticks feeding on them move farther afield. As the tick searches for a deer, it can end up on a human. When it bites, the bacterial infection it contracted more than a year ago from its mouse host is introduced to that person's body. This is what happened to the children of Lyme and Old Lyme, Connecticut. While Borrelia, the deer tick, and the tick hosts, are all native to the eastern U.S., it wasn't understood until the 1970s. The bacteria has been circulating in the ticks, rodents, birds, and deer of North America for about 60,000 years. That's long before Native Americans arrived, around 24,000 years ago. Yale geneticist Catherine Walter and her team used genetics of the bacteria to determine how long Borelli has been in the U.S. and why it's spreading at epidemic proportions today. They found that it isn't anything about the ticks or the bacteria that's changed, but the environment, which allows for more mice and more deer. The killing off of major predators, like wolves and snakes, plus The expansion of suburban habitats caused booms in the expansion of deer and tick populations. Therefore, even though Native Americans of the northeastern U.S. suffered from Lyme, it was never on the scale that we see today, with an estimated 300,000 U.S. citizens becoming ill every year. This isn't the paper for today's episode, but if you're interested in how this all works, feel free to let me know and I can do a whole episode on the methods uh, they used to figure this out. Now let's get into what urban planning can do about this with our paper out of the University of Guelph in Canada by Ms. Sarah Ward and Dr. Robert Brown, published in 2004. In it, they stress the importance of controlling tick populations as a means to keep people from getting Lyme. Because Lyme is sometimes not diagnosed before people suffer seriously, there's no vaccine approved, and the fact that patients sometimes feel the effect of the disease even after the infection is gone, it's best to keep people from getting sick in the first place. As of right now, Controlling the interaction between ticks and humans has come down to four major techniques. One, the application of large amount of arachnocides think insecticides, but for spiders and ticks. two modifying people's behavior so they don't go into high risk areas and they wear effective repellents like DEET. Three is biological control, which is using ticks' natural enemies like fungal infections and ants. Four is environmental control. Using a large amount of chemical arachnocides is not only expensive, but there are concerns about safety, and it kills other animals, not just ticks. While public health campaigns can be very effective in helping people change their behavior to become safer, the results can be fairly inconsistent. Biological control methods are still being researched and aren't ready yet for the use in mass scale. That leaves environmental control as the preferred method for controlling ticks, and therefore Lyme disease. As we found out in episode 16, urban planners can have a big impact on the transmission of diseases without meaning to, which means, with some study and some thought, they can reverse the process using the planning to decrease the number of people becoming infected. To this end, Ward and Brown compiled important studies from two different aspects of Lyme transmission to learn which types of urban design elements should be avoided, and which should be encouraged. These aspects were the ecology of the disease and the habitat of the ticks. They looked to see, in all of these studies, where the most and the fewest ticks could be found. With this information, they produced three tools for urban planners to use in the design phase of their plans. A decision tree, a checklist, and a list of guidelines. I love a good checklist as much as the next lady, but I'm not going to go through all of the details with you one by one. I will, however, go through some of the more interesting guidelines because I think they might be as surprising to you as they were to me. First, let's talk about something that we all know, but need to be reminded of from time to time. Just because two things happen at the same place, at the same time, doesn't mean that they have anything to do with each other. A great example of this is the rate of margarine eaten in the U.S. perfectly matches the divorce rate of the state of Maine. Of course, it would be ridiculous to think that these two rates had anything to do with each other, but with other data, it is a lot harder to tell how real the connection is. With that being said, if the research keeps showing more ticks in areas with mostly oak and maple trees, which it did, there isn't much harm in planting poplar trees instead. The features that seemed to be associated with increased risk were trees and shrubs that produced a lot of fruit. These attracted deer and mice, which you'll remember, are the favorite meals of Ixodes ticks. Thick, damp ground cover, like moss and leaves, provide a nice humid areas provide nice humid areas. Like moss and leaves provide nice humid areas for the ticks to rest during the heat of the day. Ticks, like Ixodes, don't have lungs like we do. They breathe through damp patches on their sides just behind their last pair of legs, called a spiracular plate. If the air around a tick drops below 80% humidity, the plate starts to dry out. This is a serious problem for two reasons. First, the plate has to stay damp or oxygen won't pass through it very well, suffocating the tick. And the more immediate danger is that the tick would die of dehydration. This information pertains to urban planning because putting shady trees in a park that drops lots of leaves and keeps the soil really damp means that they are keeping the humidity just the way the ticks like it. For these same reasons, ticks were more likely to be found in yards, with more boundary between the yard and woodland. Some of the most surprising guidelines were those associated with fewer ticks. A lot of people think of ticks, and they think of tall grass. But for exodes, they found the opposite was true. They recommended fewer shrubs and brush, and more pasture, lawn, and even dense grassland habitat. This goes to show that we really need to research everything. We might assume something is true, because it seems logical to us based on what we know, but until we do the work, we don't know for sure, and the rest of our work would be based on something that we thought was true, but wasn't. Unfortunately, Ms. Ward and Dr. Brown did not disclose where the funding for their work came from for this paper. I think that if you live in an area where Lyme disease is present, like I do, you can take action on some of this compiled wisdom. Even if you aren't an urban planner making decisions for whole towns or cities, you might be making decisions on what trees to plant, or where to go for a walk when it comes spring. So if you want to look over the papers and all of the guidelines from it, please go to tinyvampires.com and look for today's episode. Next month's topic gets more into biological control, which is a favorite topic of mine. And it was sent in by Steve Guerra, who had an infestation of carpenter ants in his house. The exterminator explained that they used a virus to kill the colony. Steve wants to know more about this virus and how it's used. While you wait for that episode, be sure to check out the two bonus episodes where Ben and I talk about everything from the effects of malnutrition to how pilfering a dead buddy's blanket could kill a soldier. If you are looking for even more interesting history, check out the Agora Podcast of the Month, American Biography. It's a look at the rest of American history, not just the presidents, all of the people who shaped the policies of the U.S. into what they are today. I hope that you found and continue to find this podcast informative. As I mentioned before, this episode's page on tinyvampires.com has all kinds of interesting and practical information about ticks, Lyme disease, as well as sources and music credits. Please follow me on Twitter or Facebook for all of the latest disease and insect news, or tweet your topic suggestions at me at tinyvampirespod. Raquel from Tiny Vampires Español and I would both really appreciate a review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you for listening. From me, Raven Forrest-Risgelzo, Masters of Science student at the University of Notre Dame and funded by the National Science Foundation.